Hey, good morning, everybody. It's nice to see all of you here in the library. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. This panel discussion today on the upcoming election in November is connected to our one book um, on the musical Hamilton. So it's a one book, one college program, but it's not on a book. It's on the play Hamilton. We hope you'll check that out. One of the themes, of course, in that musical is politics and elections. So this is actually us talking about one of the themes. We're going to mention the musical briefly, but really we're here to talk about this election that's coming up that's capturing so much media attention and conversation. I'm very grateful for our faculty members from political science who have volunteered their time to do this. I'll do quick intros. To my left is Mary Fafleece. Next to her is Kevin Navertel, and next to him is Darren Schreck. Thank you all. We are in good hands for this conversation. Um, I will have a microphone if there's questions. So with that, I will turn it over to Darren, I believe. Thank you. Thanks for coming, guys. Hey, good morning, and thank you for coming. Uh, uh, my name is Darren Schreck. I teach political science here at the college. And uh, I think this is a great opportunity to get some of your thoughts later on about uh, some of the issues or the topics that are going on with uh, this year's election. Uh, we have uh, two major party candidates who have the highest negatives uh, of, uh, of all time, I guess, running against one another. We have uh, two minor party candidates who have gotten some press over uh, the last few weeks uh, that you might be interested in hearing about. Uh, we're also going to tie in, I'm going to tie in a little bit about uh, what Hamilton was about and in uh, the type of country we have and how uh, the candidates that we have running today tie in with uh, Hamilton as well. So uh, thank you for coming, and I look forward to hearing from you uh, throughout the uh, panel discussion. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I am Mary Fiefleece, and uh, as I was on a panel last week about the history, and I, I remarked then, as I'll remark today, that I'm super geeked about this just because I, I absolutely love this musical. Have any of you listened to it yet or have been hasn't had a chance to see it. If you're one of the lucky few, tickets are, I think, going for like about $1,000 right now in Chicago, so good luck. Um, but this is a remarkable story, and uh, I was drawn into it right away. Um, how many of you know, are aware of the fact that um, we had a, a vice president who shot our former Secretary of the Treasury in a duel? Few of you are. So that is basically the, that is the ending of Alexander Hamilton. But his story is, is one that's particularly, particularly American and the idea that he was a person of very humble birth um, who was born in the West Indies, uh, grew up on the island of St. Croix. He was illegitimate. So his father was, had abandoned them when he was relatively young, not married to his mother. His mother died a few years after that, and then he was taken in by a cousin who shortly thereafter committed suicide. So he was kind of raised on his own and, and sort of has this Horatio Alger pulled himself by his own bootstraps upbringing and ends up getting funding from people on the island who send him to New York where he gets an education and he becomes indispensable to George Washington during the war and afterwards gets elevated to Secretary of the Treasury. And he's pretty much responsible for the financial system that we have today. Um, and without him, we wouldn't have a customs service, we wouldn't have a Coast Guard. Uh, he's responsible for quite a bit. There are also some, as Professor Shrek mentioned, there's some interesting parallels uh, between then and now, the idea of partisan politics being nothing new, his role in the 1800 election that I'll talk about more in a little bit, his political scandal um, that he, in which he had an affair with a woman and it became a very public thing. So that's something that we kind of tend to think is more of a, a more of a modern thing, and it certainly is not. It was the first sex scandal of our new republic. So there's a lot to talk about, and I, I'm I'm very excited to be here too and to relate these topics uh, to the 2016 election. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Kevin Navertel, and I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to see so many people here. Um, quick question for you guys. How many are excited about the 2016 election? Raise your hand. <laughs> a, a few people who are excited. How many of you are excited about the two presidential, two major party presidential candidates? Raise your hand. I am kind of Nobody interested. willing to raise their hand that they're excited about the 2016 presidential candidates. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing from you more about that. Uh, any, really, any questions that you have. We're going to keep our comments really brief for now. We look forward to hearing from you. Um, but I'll just say a few things. And the first is I do expect that uh, <coughs> Hillary Clinton is likely to be the winner of the 2016 presidential election. Uh, as you may know, the Electoral College is a system that we use to elect our president. And the Democrats have a significant advantage in the Electoral College, at least in the last about six elections. If you look at the states that have voted Democrat in the last six presidential elections, it is a combined 242 Electoral College votes out of the 270 that would be a majority to win. Uh, so that really leaves just, uh, you know, potentially the state of Florida as the necessary number of Electoral College votes to win. Um, so we could talk more about that, how the Democrats have maybe a little bit more of an advantage in the Electoral College. But I really think I so many of you don't seem too excited about the presidential candidates. Uh, I hope that we look at this election as bigger than just the presidential election. Uh, the U.S. Senate is up for grabs, uh, potentially changing party hands uh, from Republicans to Democrats. It's going to be a competitive, there's going to be several competitive Senate races, including the one in Illinois. I think uh, the House of Representatives is likely to stay in control of the, uh, by the Republicans, but there's several uh, competitive key races around the United States, a couple of which in Illinois as well. And, uh, you know, at the state level, there's a lot of state representatives, state senators who are up for election. And so many key issues that influence the quality of our lives are really decided at the state level, including, of course, uh, education funding higher education funding, um, voter rights uh, bills. So I hope that um, despite our lack of enthusiasm maybe about the presidential election, we understand that it's really key to participate, not just in elections. And as a plug, we have the student uh, SGA over here who's uh, registering students to vote. But I hope you see this as uh, bigger than just one presidential election, that uh, it's uh, a lot of key races going on uh, all the way down to the state level. And um, I think the final point I'll make is I guess my prediction is that the United States presidency will be controlled by Democrats, Senate probably by Democrats, House by Senate. And then that, I, I guess my concern is where does that leave us after 2016, uh, where we have divided government, where we've had significant gridlock, where very little is being done on very key issues that face our country that I think many of us are unsatisfied with the direction we're headed. And I'm concerned that that may not change after the 2016 election. Perhaps we can talk more about that. Mm -hmm. And then the final point I'll throw out there is that maybe Republicans can win by losing. Uh, what I mean by that is they could lose the, the presidential election, but still as a party be very successful uh, in retaining control of at least the House, if not the Senate, but also uh, do very well at the state level. Uh, a few numbers I just want to throw out as far as the eight years that Obama has been president, Democrats lost 11 governorships, 13 U.S. Senate seats, 
69 House of Representative seats in 913 state legislative seats, uh, leading to losing control of 30 state legislative chambers. So in, in part, being the minority party as far as not holding the presidency uh, has been very successful for Republicans and perhaps having Hillary Clinton as a president could yield success again for the next four years for Republicans, uh, in especially at state level races. So I'll leave it at that. I'm excited to hear from you guys and any questions you may have. You know, Kevin, you brought up a, a point uh, of how the, uh, the Republican Party at the state level and even at the, I guess you could say, at the Senate level and the House level uh, really developed a pretty good bench. Like, to use a sports analogy, if you, if you want to have a good team, you have to have people to come off the bench to take over for, you know, your starting lineup. Or you can even look at it and say that if you want to have a team that, that lasts for a long time, that, that is successful for a, a long period of time, you have to have a good minor league baseball system. Let's say in, 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 in this case of uh, Major League Baseball, you have to have a minor league system. You have to develop talent. And it's very interesting that the Republican Party for pretty much the last eight years has been developing talent. And they had 17, roughly 17 candidates uh, running for president. And many of them had impressive records at the, uh, the governor's level or even at the Senate level. And yet uh, they lost out to the candidate who pretty much sounded different from everybody else. And I think that taps into an anger, at least at the, in the Republican Party, and we kind of saw it with the Democratic Party to a, a different extent with Bernie Sanders, that there is a significant portion of the Republican base that is angry with the John McCain's and the Mitt Romney's of the world, and they weren't willing to turn to, let's say, a John Kasich, who, for me, frankly, probably had the most impressive record that here is a candidate in his entire history has won every single election that he has run in the state of in the state of Ohio, his home state. He has never lost an election. He even won his own state in the primary against Donald Trump. Marco Rubio couldn't do that. Jeb Bush couldn't do that in Florida. But John Kasich did. And voters still nationwide said, you know what? We're just not impressed. And that is going, whether or not Donald Trump wins in November, it's going to really set off, I think, like a reworking of the party mm -hmm. where they're going to have to develop their talent even more and say, we really have to stick to a formula. Now, the Democrats, they really haven't done very well with developing talent either because they're picking, the voters pick somebody from the 1990s to be their, uh, to be their nominee in terms of when, how long people have known Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders has been around for a long time as well. So if Hillary Clinton wins, the Democratic Party, for the next eight years, let's say she gets reelected for the next four years, the person who's going to take over for Hillary Clinton is somebody who you probably have never heard of because that's going to be eight years down the line. And that candidate will probably be in her or his 50s or in its 60s. So that means somebody today who's in their 40s or 50s will be looking to the presidency in the next eight years. And the same thing happens on the Republican side. You're going to have to look for somebody today who just got started in the Senate or the House or as a governor, who you can look down the line in the next four to eight years and say, okay, that's who our nominee is going to be. So for both parties, they're going to have to develop talent because I can understand 
how angry you are or disappointed you are because I'm pretty much as disappointed uh, in the same fashion with the candidates that we have at the top of the major two tickets. So what I, I've been telling people, even in the state of Illinois, I know that you know, Hillary Clinton is going to win this state, but if you really want to show the major two parties that change is needed, you can't always vote for the major two parties. If you don't give them a reason to change, they'll never change. So there are other candidates on the ballot for president who probably won't win Illinois and they probably won't win any other state, as in like Gary Johnson, a libertarian candidate for president, or Jill Stein, a Green Party candidate for president. But the only way you can get the parties to listen is to participate in a way that would make them listen. You can't always vote for the same two over and over and over again and expect change to occur. And, you know, not to take up all the time, but when we're talking about somebody like Hamilton, you know, Hamilton was a structuralist. He was a believer in the Constitution. He was a believer in order. And, and in a way, we all argue as if we're Jeffersonian people. I mentioned this in class. We talk a big game. I want the government off my back. Mm -hmm. I want the government to stay out of my pocketbook. I want the government to stay away from me. But you know what? I need the police, and I need that structure of school, mm -hmm. and I need the structure of the roads, and I need this to be built, and I need that to be built. Well, government's going to have to do that. So we like to have small government in our minds, but we live in a way where we have an active and a burgeoning uh, federal government uh, as a reality. So we live like Hamiltonians, but we talk like we're Thomas Jefferson. You want to open up the questions? Yeah, you want to open up the floor to questions, and then we can kind of take it from there? If you have a question, raise your hand. I will come to you with the microphone so we all can hear. Well, to pick up on where Professor Shrek uh, left off, because he, he brought up some, some great points, that yes, definitely Hamilton was a person who, whose love of revolution, in this case, clashed with his fear of radicalism. And a lot of that came to, had to do with his upbringing and, and the things that he saw in St. Croix and the radicalism that he even saw that could, you know, the idea of mob rule taking over after the revolution took place when we had the government under the Articles of Confederation, which proved to be an inadequate government and needed change. Um, and so I wanted to pick up also on what he said about the about uh, Jefferson and, and, and versus Hamilton. One of the songs in the um, musical is a, is a basically a cabinet battle between Hamert Hamilton and Jefferson over whose vision of the country would ultimately rule. Um, that's not the one that we're going to necessarily play, but it is particularly interesting. But what I'd like to just address maybe a little bit more from an historical point of view and relate it to the 2016 election is how Hamilton was a bit of a kingmaker in the 1800 presidential election. Um, Hamilton becomes Secretary of the Treasury under George Washington, and George Washington serves two terms and then makes a decision to step down after his two terms. He could have kept running if he wanted to. Hamilton found himself, after John Adams, to be kind of the highest Federalist, the most powerful Federalist uh, in the party, but his name was besmirched a bit by this scandal I have yet to address. And then we come to the 1800 presidential election. And at the time, it was basically whoever wins the presidency is in first place. Whoever comes in second place becomes the vice president. So you had a president of one party in first place, and you had, an, a, 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 well, in this case, we had a tie, and then we end up having a president 
uh, of one party. Uh, I'm sorry, the 1790, excuse me, the 1796 presidential election, you had a president of one party and a vice president of another. And imagine if that were to happen today. One of the things I was talking about with one of my classes, I actually think that would be kind of a good thing if we could have that in our politics today, if we could have a president of one party and the vice president of another. I think that actually might go rather well in healing some of the gridlock um, that we've had over the past 15, 20 years. Um, but to come to the 1800 election, uh, we had an electoral tie. And Hamilton found himself in the position of being asked to, to give his support one way or another. One was to his, his he had two nemeses, if you will. Um, he didn't like his former friend Aaron Burr, and he didn't like his, his Thomas Jefferson with whom he had worked and clashed with under Washington's administration. So I want to uh, play for you one of the songs from Hamilton um, where about the 1800 election and the role that he actually has in that. So any themes that you picked up on there that may sound a little bit familiar? <laughs> Neither candidate being particularly palatable to the public. Uh, and, the, and in the case for Hamilton, as he's, he's asked to weigh in on this, um, he doesn't like Jefferson, but he now hates Burr even more. Well, this ends up leading is one more nail in the coffin for why Burr does not like him and ends up eventually challenging into a duel and killing him in 1804. That doesn't go over very well. So Aaron Burr ends up as Jefferson's vice president, uh, and that does not help that relationship. But again, we're kind of faced with a similar election in 2016 where we've got two candidates that as Pro Professor Nevertel pointed out, none of, neither of you, none of you seem to be particularly enthusiastic about either one of them. Um, and that is a, certainly is, a, is cause for alarm. Um, and it just a, a couple other themes that I think were, were, could be picked up in there as well about the idea that, um, you know, that Jefferson says, well, at least you know where, where I stand, where you know, Burr's opinions seem to be kind of kept to himself. And I think you could also make a correlation between that and the two major party candidates that we have up there now. We have a question in the back. Yeah, um, the guy on the, on the right, what's your name? Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, uh, Darren Shrek. Yeah, um, I'm John, and you said that uh, Illinois, the state of Illinois is gonna be a big participation in today's vote, but actually Chicago is one of the biggest cities that's segregated in today's country. And um, I just wanted to ask, what was your standpoint on, you know, who was who you really going for, either Republican or Democratic? Who, me personally? Yes. I haven't decided. I haven't decided myself. You haven't decided? No. Oh. No. You too? Um, <laughs> well, I, I'll be honest with you. I, uh, I'm not a person that can particularly hide my biases as I talk, because all of us have a bias on something. And so I always tell my students from the beginning, you'll pick up how I feel about something, because I do my best to try to present um, all sides of a, of, of a coin, if you will, but I also um, uh, encourage my students to disagree with them, which some of them do, and I encourage that. I wish it happened even more often. Um, this election, I look at it as, while I'm not particularly, I have reservations about Hillary Clinton as well, I'm for Hillary Clinton because I look at it as a measure of experience. Um, if I needed cardi a cardiology surgery, cardiac surgery, I wouldn't hire a plumber. And we have this belief in this country where when it comes to the presidency of the United States, that it's a job that, that doesn't require qualifications. Now, to be fair, no job really prepares you to be president of the United States, no matter what you, you know, do. But there are some jobs that can prepare you more than others. Um, and in the case of, of this particular individual, 
She has experience that no other candidate in, in history has ever had in that she had eight years in the White House as First Lady. Now some people might discount that and say, does that really count? Well, her office was within the West Wing and it was said very much that President Bill Clinton relied on her tremendously, that she was referred to by Paul Begala, his, uh, was it, one of his aides at the time, that um, she was the Supreme Court. When he had something that he had to pass out, he, he went by her first. He went through her first before he came public on it. So um, I look at just as a question of experience. There are things that she does I'm not crazy about, but when you have a life of public service for over 30 years, yeah, your hands are gonna be a little bit dirty. That is kind of, there's politics. It's a quid pro quo business. Um, but I found her to be a moderate person, a person who's not of extremes, kind of like a Hamilton. She fears radicalism too. Um, and Republicans who worked with her when she went into the Senate after being in the White House said that she was, colleagues liked her. She was well easy to work with, made deals, got things done. She is a, she's a nerd, she's a policy wonk. She wants to get stuff done. And if she can't get everything she wants done, she'll get part of what she can get done. And I'd rather have that than have the alternative. So. Okay. In the middle, you wanna say? Uh, thanks for your question, John. And I, I, you know, to the first part, you're right. S Chicago's the most segregated city we have in the United States, and that you know reiterates my point that please see this election as more than just the you know national election with uh, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump as the two major party candidates. So you need to get involved uh, at the at the local level. Uh, as far as the voting, you know, that's the one question I won't respond to. Uh, I have half, I have 30 students here today. It's important to me. Um, you know, I respect both my colleagues and their responses, but just for my own um, comfort level in the classroom, I like to, to um, not put my own views out there. And, and yes, I probably have my own biases, but I'd rather not say. I'm not conflicted. It's going to be a pretty easy decision of who to vote for, but I'd rather keep that to myself. Good question. Other questions? Yeah, I'll come over. Okay, so my question is for you. Uh, so you said that you would actually think it might be good if we had a uh, nominee from one party and, and, and the other, and president, mm -hmm. vice president. How do you think, if that were to happen, how do you think that would affect the House and the Senate, mm -hmm. who are obviously both competing mm -hmm. as well. So um, the last time I believe that ever actually happened in electoral history, my colleagues can, can correct me if I'm wrong, was in uh, 1864 when Abraham Lincoln chose Andrew Johnson, who was a Democrat, to be his vice president. Um, and the precedent for kind of where I, I came up with that was not only that, but in 2008, John McCain had originally wanted to select Joe Lieberman, who was more of a centrist Democrat, to be his vice, vice presidential candidate that got killed by members of his own party on the right who didn't, he was viewed as too far to the left to be a, a viable candidate. Um, and the idea was that since both of them were senators, they'd gotten along very well, that they would be able to work with members of both the House and Senate to get effective legislation passed. Again, moderate legislation. It might not be everything that this person wants or everything that that person wants, but a compromise somewhere in the middle. Um, and so that's kind of where I was coming from with, with liking that idea of, of having a president and a vice president from different parties. The question was, do we think parties are more divided today than they were back then? Um, I tend to look at, and my colleagues can, do it okay if I take that one or you want? Um, <laughs> so George Washington, when he retires after his two terms in 1796, gives a farewell address in which he, he basically is 
decrying the fact that we have partisan politics. That was not something that the founding fathers had taken into account, the idea of having multiple parties and, and partisanship. And there have been times in our country where we've had definite gridlock and partisanship, the, the years before the Civil War. Um, I would definitely agree that, and the, probably the years during the 1960s during the Civil Rights era, I would definitely agree that this is one of those times too that we're in a, we're in a tough position now, but I think the country, we have kind of an ebb and flow. I, I personally like the moderation of our political system. It's slow, it's incremental, and it can be maddening, but I, I personally, maybe I'm more Hamiltonian in that way, prefer that rather than one extreme versus the other. So that's the way that I, I view it. I, I think the parties are more extreme, not necessarily from the organizational standpoint, but because I think politics has become 24-7 in our lives. Uh, mm -hmm. You could probably find people of, of all stripes, Democrats and Republicans, who would say maybe 30 years ago or 20 years ago, you know, I'm a Republican, but I'm going to vote for so-and-so because he gets, you know, I'll vote for a Democrat because the Democrat gets the job done for me. And uh, you'd find Democrats who would say, you know, I typically don't vote for Republicans, but uh, I'll vote for this Republican because he gets my streets done or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Or he's tough on crime or he has a strong sense of uh, national security. But I think because politics in the news cycle has become, you know, so ingrained in our everyday lives, I think people are a little bit more, um, I don't want to say that they're educated on the issues, but they kind of investigate a little bit more and they're realizing like, wait a minute, I don't really agree with this guy that I've been voting for. And I think they're becoming a little bit more, I don't wanna say closed-minded about things, but they're becoming a little bit more uh, insular about the events in the world and, and they just wanna stick to their own mm -hmm. views and find candidates who follow their mindset 100% of the time, even though it's very difficult to find candidates who agree with you 100% of the time. Um, granted that um, both of the major party candidates are not exactly the best uh, candidates that we've had, um, do you think this election or even the next election would be a good time to start getting more press for third party candidates? If the press doesn't cover a third party candidate, you won't know about a third party candidate. I think that's the biggest problem. Uh, if you look at the uh, governor's election in Illinois, when uh, Rod Blagojevich ran against Judy Bartopinka, the Green Party candidate received 11% of the vote, and it wasn't because people were agreeing with his issues. His name was Rich Whitney. People voted for him because they didn't like the major two mm -hmm. candidates. And I think you're going to see a number, you know, over 5%, maybe between 5 and 10% for Gary Johnson. But that doesn't mean that four years down the line that people are going to gravitate to the Libertarian Party. I think you're gonna see maybe Jill Stein get somewhere between two and 5% as a Green Party candidate, but I don't think four years down the line people are gonna gravitate towards her either. And a big problem with that is, or a big reason for that is, is that in four years you're going to have an incumbent running for president. And it's going to be a, um, a referendum on those four years. And if you have a popular incumbent, nobody is going to vote for a third party candidate. In this case we have uh, two major party candidates that people don't like. So they're looking for another candidate to vote for. So it just might be that people are voting for Johnson or they're voting for Stein because it's a protest vote. Not because they agree with what the Libertarians say or what the Greens say. There are gonna be many people who show up on election day and look at the ballot and realize that there are more than two people on the ballot. 
Gary Johnson is going to be on the ballot in 50 states in Washington, D.C. Jill Stein is going to be on the ballot in 43 states. Five states allow you to write in her name. So that means two states, if you tried to write in her name, they wouldn't accept the, the write-in. So there are opportunities to vote for other candidates out there. But will that go for four years? Will that last for another four to eight years? Probably not, because those two parties lack the ground game to keep it going for four, eight, 12 years. The Republican Party has been around since 1854. The Democratic Party, as we know it today, has been around since the 1820s. So it's already ingrained in our mindset that there are two. Mm -hmm. It's already ingrained in our mindset that they have an organization. And when you look for a, a Republican office, let's say a Republican um, uh, campaign office, you'll find one in this area. If you want to find a Democratic one, you'll, you'll, you'll find one. But if you're looking for a Green or a Libertarian one, it might be in somebody's house. You know, they might be sending out mailers straight, straight from their mailbox. You know, what good is that? So in order to campaign, in order to compete, you have to have a ground game. You have to have people at the lower level to help that party grow. And it's already there for the Republicans and Democrats. I like third parties. I study third parties. I think they're great because they add a, a, an additional voice to the political process. But at the same time, I'm a realist, and I, and I realize that it's very difficult for them to win if they don't have people in the neighborhoods campaigning. There's a political quiz out there that I'd recommend some of you take. You can just find it relatively easy on Google. I side with, and you could take to see who's, how your views align with all the major candidates. And just as a full disclosure, since I was already honest before, Jill Stein was actually my number one. <laughs> um, so, and then, and then second was, was Hillary Clinton. So I, I again, but kind of going off of Darren's point, I'm attempting to be a realist as well. The alternative for me is not an option. So I'm gonna go with the person that I think is gonna, you know, win. Can, can I put Darren on the spot real quick and then I'll come up here. Earlier you said um, the Republicans were building a good bench over the Obama years, gaining House seats, gaining governorships. If that's true, how did we get to Trump? Uh, he Who is so disliked? Not, I'm not making a statement no, no, about Trump, no. but clearly disliked, right? He said something different than the other 16 weren't saying. And so you had 16 candidates who split their votes on national security, they split their votes on taxes, they split the votes on um, uh, on uh, all the major Republican issues at that time. And you had one candidate who is not a conservative within the party, wasn't a member of the party, uh, he's not really liberal on issues, he sounded like a populist. And if you look at European countries that have populism, the populism all sounds the same. Somebody's bad, somebody's to blame, and let's, let's point fingers. Mm -hmm. There are no solutions. And the solutions that have come up with that, that Donald Trump comes up with, I don't think would ever work. We've had it throughout American history, and I've talked about it in my class. We had a know-nothing party that blamed Catholics for all the problems. We had a populist party that blamed uh, businesses for all the problems. We had uh, a Dixiecrat party led by Strom Thurmond who said that if you expanded civil rights to uh, African Americans that you'd have problems in this country as well. So. People wanted to point fingers at somebody, and you couldn't point a finger at the president because he wasn't running for re-election. So we had to point it at somebody. It's the Muslim, it's the Mexican, it's the, uh, it's the woman, it's the male, it, whoever you want to point it at. Somebody will find an avenue to vent their frustration and their anger. That's what populism is all about. Mm -hmm. 
and it's reckless. And people were looking for something that was reckless on one side that didn't sound like the milk toast of John McCain and the milk toast of Mitt Romney. They were tired of it. But if you had a one-on-one, -on -one, if you had two candidates competing against each other and not 16 versus one, we might have a different uh, reaction or a different result on the Republican side. Yeah, to pick up on what, what Darren just said, I think that the debates are going to be interesting. I was just listening this morning. Some of you may have heard um, that uh, Trump is calling for a, a debate with no moderator because it worked for him against 16 candidates where he could kind of just sit back there and throw out his jibes one after another against this person, little Marco, all his little things, his little expressions that he had. Well, now this is going to be one-on-one -on -one where the questions are going to be more direct and it will be minute after minute where he's going to have to expand on his policies. And if there isn't much there, it's going to be very obvious. And so that's kind of why he's advocating an idea of a forum with no moderator so that he can you know, kind of steer it as he wants to. And he's been masterful at that. I mean, he definitely, one thing that he has over Hillary Clinton, he's got an enthusiasm advantage. People who are voting for him are going to vote for him. They're very enthusiastic. Nothing is going to sway their votes at this point in time in this election. So I had a question for um, Professor Shrek. Earlier you said that um, voting for Gary Johnson or um, Stein is more like a, a protest vote. Do you think that is an effective, do you think that will be effective in this election or it does, at this point it doesn't really um, matter? I, I, think, I think what would happen is, is that if you, if you vote third party, I don't think it's a throwaway vote. Any vote, is, any vote that you have is not a throwaway. That, that's my you know, disclaimer right there. But I think if, it, if you vote for somebody outside of the major two, the only way the major two will listen to the voter is if you continue to vote for one of the minor parties in state elections and local elections. That's the only way. You just can't vote third party one year and then say, okay, it's going to work its way out. It's going to, they'll listen to me for the next four years. They won't listen to you if you don't give them a reason to, for them to listen to you over the next four years. So you have to continue voting third party to challenge the two-party system. So at first, it looks like a protest vote, but you have to carry that over for the next four years. I, I, uh, I just want to say to that point, I, I don't think that the, that the rules really, and there was another question earlier, I think Tony brought it up about the third party candidates. The rules really matter in elections. It's a winner-take-all system. There's no points for second place. You know, yes, if you get five percent of the vote, your funding changes the next election. But you can have candidates like Ross Perot, who in 1992 got 19 percent of the popular vote, but didn't win the, the most votes in any single state. He got zero electoral college votes. It's really hard for me to imagine in the near future, in the near four to presidential cycles, so the next 16 years, of having a third party be really successful. Uh, our predictions are not <laughs> always accurate. I don't think many political scientists would predict Donald Trump to be the, the Republican nominee. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, <laughs> but that being said, I think the rules are really important. So, and there's going to be so many states, uh, battleground states, where a few thousand votes could really matter. You know, uh, as many people are aware, you know, in 2000 we had a very close election in Florida, uh, 537 votes, I think, off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Uh, out of over six million people who voted. And so, as one example, 100,000 people voted for Ralph Nader, a Green Party candidate. So uh, if, if uh, Florida 
would have uh, gone to, to Al Gore, if some of those Green Party voters who voted for Nader would have voted for Al Gore, George W. Bush wouldn't have been president in 2000. So, you know, I, I really like having choices, uh, and I think it's good for democracy, but I think we have to remember the way that the, the electoral rules are structured. And then I, there's something I've been thinking about all along here. Do we trust ourselves? How well do we trust ourselves to be making these decisions? Mm. You mean, we said we're not satisfied with the candidates, but who picked them? <laughs> Does anybody know, have a friend, anybody who's had a significant other, you know, somebody who's had multiple boyfriends or multiple girlfriends, and that boyfriend or girlfriend has always got problems? You can't trust them, and, and you know, they complain about every ex that they've ever had? <laughs> Sometimes that seems like us with our candidates. We always complain about them, mm -hmm. and this new one is worse than the last one. Mm -hmm. But we select them. We had over 20 presidential candidates. I, I mean, I don't know that more is better I as far as giving us more choices. I don't know that I trust the American people right now to be making a better decision in 2020 than we did in 2016. And I, I'm not saying, I'm trying to be devil's advocate here, but it wasn't that long ago, pre-1972, where really party elites, quite frankly, a bunch of old guys, old white guys in rooms would pick our candidates for us. And we've democratized it in allowing uh, citizens through in primaries and caucuses to have more of a direct role. But there's an argument to be made that, you know, maybe the parties would have done better if they would have, the party elites would have picked the, the, uh, the most qualified, deserving candidate uh, instead of allowing the voters to. Um, well, you know, it's funny because you mentioned that they were picked by party elites, and then when we look at our we look at these candidates from a historical perspective, we hold them with high regard. Mm -hmm. And now we're picking people, and like uh, Professor Navratil said, we're, we're the ones who are picking these candidates, and then we complain about them. Mm -hmm. Or we complain about these parties that we, you know, we keep pushing. It, it, we can't have it both ways. Can't have it both mm -hmm. ways. Um, this is for Professor Navratil. Do you, uh, being that this election sucks so much, do you think that like this would affect like our international affairs? Being that, like, do you think they would take them seriously, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton? So just so I heard the, the question clearly, did you s this election sucks? <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I'm trying to throw out different ideas. I don't think that this election sucks. Uh -huh. I think that many people are dissatisfied with the, the, the major party presidential candidates. But I really want to be clear, so many decisions are, are made not at the national level, and even at the national level, we have House of Representatives and Senators at the state level, things like minimum wage, uh, criminal justice reform. I, mean, I could go on and on. This election doesn't suck. It's, it, it, it's a very important election. We just need to look just beyond our two major party presidential candidates. Um, with regards to foreign policy and the image of the United States, 100% this is going to matter. Uh, okay. And it, it already has mattered. You know, there's been many foreign leaders who have looked upon uh, our election season with some concern, uh, and, and uh, I think there's some concern about who may end up winning, uh, and the implications, it's gonna have implications on trade. Uh, if I could back up for a moment, I wish this, this uh, election would be more about issues. Mm -hmm. I think a foreign policy in particular, it would be really nice to know the differences between these, if you wanna say four candidates, where they stand on Syria. Um, you know, or know where Syria is, or, or what Aleppo is. Um, and it would be nice that at least, and this isn't a dig just at Gary Johnson, but our presidential candidates have been lucky that they really haven't, they, they haven't 
gotten into the weeds of the details on foreign policy and the potential trade-offs on that. And that's in part because maybe we don't hold them to that account. I mean, we in the media and others, but they aren't forced to ask those questions. So sorry to kind of go all over the place, but yes, this election is, is going to be very important for foreign policy. Other questions? Just a comment, maybe you guys can throw in. Just to touch on the local issue, your state reps that go to Springfield, your village officials, even though we're not voting for village officials right now if in the suburbs, these are small areas, and you can meet these people. It's with a little work, email them. They will actually meet you in their offices, too, and you can look them in the eye and know what they stand for. You may agree with them, you may not. But it actually is very easy to connect on the local level, much easier than meeting a president or meeting a senator or meeting a congressman. It's doable, and you can get to know them and know what they stand for, and I would encourage you to do that. In fact, many of them come to our campus all the time to talk. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, or, and I'll take other questions, too. I think Christina had a question. Yep. He'll bring you the microphone, Christine. He'll bring you the microphone. Yeah, I'm coming. I'm coming. Why well, it's coming <laughs> around? I just, you know, we. I think everybody in this room cares about uh, state of Illinois having a budget or having funding for schools. And again, we. I could go on, but there's another person ready to ask a question. But clearly, there's a lot of uh, significance at the local level. I just have one quick question, I guess, for everybody, but raise of hands, who's actually voting this year? Who's registered to Good actually question. vote? Okay, so, yes. Um, that, and then that goes back to the whole populist thing and the whole, you know, everybody in this country is, in a sense, getting their information from the media Little people are actually doing research. A lot of people don't care enough to do it, but yet they don't realize that all of the elections, like you said, that are happening at the state level are going to affect you in the future. And if you actually stand up and choose to voice your opinion, then your living conditions within your state, actually, because the truth is, is the federal government is on a much larger scale. So they're giving you these state governments to help better your quality of life and it's just kind of heartbreaking that everyone has so much to say but yet here we are half almost what half the people in this room aren't registered to vote so i don't know if it's an an issue of age or maybe generations but i just feel like if people stood up and actually started voting at the local level then yes you might see changes not exactly right now but in the future at the larger level you know i, I bring it up in in class all the time that we have uh, national races or for president we might have a 60 percent turnout but at, when you get closer and closer to the local level for something like school board and you look at your property taxes and you see that you're paying 67% of your property taxes to schools and you notice that when you're paying when you're voting in a school election about 5% of the population shows up so 5% of the population shows up for something that has a more direct effect on your everyday lives than the presidential race so understand that like uh, mr. Swanson brought up that we're not voting for village elections, we're not voting in local elections, but there will be down-ballot elections to vote in. We have a United States Senate election between Tammy Duckworth and incumbent Republican Mark Kirk, which is a very important race on the national uh, scene. Uh, if Republicans uh, lose a few seats, they, they will lose the Senate to the Democratic Party. So there are national implications to our Senate race. So. You can, you know, do whatever you want with the presidential race, but you can vote under, you know, for the down ballot races, which I think are as equally as important, or even more important in most cases, uh, depending on the issue, 
that uh, is important to you. I just uh, I couldn't say it better, Darren. But uh, to go back, to can you turn on the microphone up there? It's on. That's I just wanted to uh, carry through with the point that uh, the last comment made uh, from the from the audience. So, as far as voter turnout, people registered to vote. So this is from the New York Times. Nine percent of America chose Trump and Clinton as the no nominees. I think this is. Uh, so just gotta scroll through this. So we have, there's 324 million Americans. So about 103 can't vote. Um, because they're either not old enough or that they are a felon, depending upon the state that they live in. Uh, 88 million eligible adults do not vote at all, even in general elections. 73 million did not vote in the primaries this year. And again, th these are people who are going to vote in, in, the, in November, but didn't vote in the primary or caucus system. So back to, if we're not satisfied with who our candidates are, these 73 million people who sat out the, um, the primary and caucus season uh, helped determine who won the, the major nominations. And so of the 60 million people who did vote, uh, you know, it's about split half between Democrats and Republicans. And as Darren pointed out, we had about 17 Republican candidates, at one time five Democratic candidates, but at least two for um, the entirety of the of the season. So th those were split between those candidates. And so one way of looking at this is half the primary voters chose other candidates. Uh, so breaks down to about 9% of all eligible uh, voters who voted for those two major party candidates. So you know, not voting is, uh, has significant implications for the results. Again, not just at the national level, but to Darren's point, at the local level as well. Other questions? Yeah. Um, so I read somewhere that um, in certain states, I remember Alaska for sure, but I can't remember a couple of the others, that um, Majority of the population voted for Bernie Sanders as their um, Democratic nominee, but the delegates and superdelegates went to Hillary instead. Um, is there a way maybe that something should be put in place to stop that? Because the people are voicing their opinion, but it's not going their way. Yeah, uh, 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 <laughs> uh, I'm on. Thanks for taking a picture when I was doing <laughs> that one. <laughs> no, but the, um, the superdelegate process only takes place in one party. It's only on the Democratic side. And the reason why the Democratic Party has it is to the, the party elites back in the 1970s and I believe the early 80s, they wanted to make sure that outsider candidates didn't infiltrate the party and, uh, and win the primaries. Uh, a good example of that would be in 1984 and 1988 when Jesse Jackson ran for president and won the state of Michigan, for example. Uh, in, 19, in 2004, Howard Dean, the governor at the time of Vermont, decided to run for president. And uh, they were fearful because he was bringing in too many younger people into the party. Uh, the superdelegate process is set up by the elites in the Democratic Party to ensure that outsiders don't win the system, don't win outright. So the only people who can change the superdelegate process are the people 
who made the rules in the first place. And they're not interested in doing that. Uh, we look at, you look at the Republican side, and I'm sure the Republican Party was hoping that they had superdelegates because the elites would have made sure that a Jeb Bush won or a John Kasich would have won or a Marco Rubio would have won. So the Democratic side, you know, we have a candidate that the young people like, but you realize the rules are in place and he's going to lose. And on the Republican side, like uh, Kevin was pointing out, you have a candidate who basically benefited by 16 people splitting their vote. And uh, you're probably wishing that there was a mechanism in place for an outsider not to win. Two points. I can see how that seems to violate notions of democracy and fairness. So the point is, is a candidate who wins the most votes in a particular state may not receive the most delegates overall or a majority of the, the superdelegates. Um, you know, I know that Democrats created them in part because after the 1968 and 72 election, when we allowed voters to help pick the candidate, they picked some bad candidates, and the Democrats lost elections. Uh, Hubert Humphrey and McGovern as, as two examples. Um, to Darren's point that you know Republicans may like to have superdelegates now, another way of looking at it, these parties have established over 150-year-old brands, and to allow somebody to come in, you know, so for the, the Democrats, they have superdelegates, these are current or former elected officials who have a stake in the election. So it's a, to their benefit to have a popular, a presidential candidate who's going to do well of bringing out all those millions of people I showed you who don't vote, to bring them out of the woodwork and show up to vote. Because when they vote for Democrat or Republican at the top of the ticket, they tend to vote Democrat or Republican all the way down. So it's in the interest of the Democratic Party to have the best possible candidate at the top of the ticket to help bring out the voters to help win the Senate, the House, the lower level races. So to that point, I think the party has a certain amount of stake of maintaining, maintaining their image. Uh, and, and perhaps the Republicans would like to have a little bit more say instead of uh, some of the party elites, at least, of, of having a say of, of, of picking their, who their candidate is. Um, I have a question. So. I think Professor, um, Professor Shrek mentioned this earlier, but as of now, do we, are Jill Stein and Gary Johnson going to be invited to the debates? Uh, Jill Stein actually has an arrest warrant oh in the state of North Dakota. <laughs> I mean, no, look that one up. As so, okay. And she also, but seriously, she has 2%. She wouldn't be invited. I think the only thing that Gary Johnson has going for him is that if he were to, the way the debates are set up is that you have to have uh, an average of 15% in the polls, five national polls, which is ridiculous because we don't vote nationally. We vote state by state by state. So he doesn't have the, the national average, but if you picked out about 20 or 25 states, you could find him with uh, up to about 20% of the vote in some states. So the only way he could get invited is if he made an argument to the debate commission that there are states that are voting for him or, or polling for him at a higher rate than, than uh, they are nationally. But as of right now, I think you'd only find two candidates on the uh, debate stage. Um, since Bernie Sanders was a big part of the election and attracting young voters, do you think his policies would be a success on even just a state level smaller than countries like Denmark and Sweden?
Did you want to add to that as far as which policies in particular? I guess it was just a general question. <laughs> you can yeah. You can go about it however you want. <laughs> I was just like. So the question, can, can you just restate it for yeah, me? Yeah, of course. Uh, Bernie Sanders was a big part of the election in attracting young voters. So do you think his policies could be a success just even on state levels that are smaller than countries like Denmark and Sweden? Just like, I guess, yeah, policies I, like I, free yeah. college, for example. Sure. I, so yeah, the, it's a great point. As we know, Bernie Sanders came very close to winning the Democratic nomination. He has a huge following of supporters, particularly young people, very passionate supporters. Uh, he often uh, would reference some of his policy ideas of, of, of uh, you know, showing how they work in, in, in Scandinavia, places like Finland, Denmark, um, Sweden. And so could it work at a state level? I, you know, based on the gridlock that I'm predicting at the national level, I think we better hope that whatever, we better hope that states embark on change because I don't think we're going to get a lot of change at the national level. And I know my students are probably done talking about federalism. That we've finished. No, keep going. <laughs> we've, we didn't get enough last Thursday. But it might be cool to see states really continue, because they already have started this, to go very separate ways on a whole host of issues. Uh, you know, some states are treat immigrants different, um, uh, undocumented Im immigrants differently, as far as providing driver's license or potentially getting state um, tuition rates and so forth. So maybe we could see, I don't know, some of the more liberal states go, you know, like Massachusetts initially did with their health care plan um, before the United States, you know, had a, before the uh, national level health care act came in. So th that's quite possible. And uh, I don't, you know, as far as the free tuition, we're already seeing some of that at the community college level where a, a few states have already gone that route. So it is possible, especially with college tuition. Just to add to that point, um, one of the things that to also piggyback off of something Professor Shrek said earlier, Bernie Sanders was running under the Democratic ticket, but he has run for years as an independent socialist who caucused with the Democrats. And one of the effective natures of third parties is that it forces the other parties to sort of gravitate towards either the left or the right in their party. And so you're seeing Hillary Clinton pick up on numerous ideas that were that were very uh, important to Bernie Sanders supporters, hoping to attract those voters. So things like uh, free, I believe, state college tuition, uh, and so it, perhaps that could provide an example for some states that are a bit more imaginative and willing, if they have the political will to actually get it done, but to go back to Professor Navelto's point, right now the political will, and I guess it depends on the state again, but federally does not, I think it's gonna be very, it would be very difficult to get that passed. Yeah, and I also think too that uh, one of the last well-known socialists outside of Bernie Sanders who was elected to office was a mayor out uh, from uh, Milwaukee, and that was in the 1920s. And he was a socialist, an avowed socialist, and uh, probably more socialist than what Bernie Sanders was. But the, the fact is is that that was done at the city level, and, uh, and you're dealing with a smaller population. Mm -hmm. Even at that time, Milwaukee was smaller than it is today. So you're, I think that type of policy would work, as, as Professors uh, Paflis and Navratil were saying. I think the Bernie Sanders type policies would work on a much smaller scale, mm -hmm. probably even smaller than a, a, a large country like Sweden and Denmark, too. No, not anymore. <laughs> Other questions? So we stated earlier that Donald Trump probably got as far as he has already because he's different from everybody else. And then we said that <coughs> Hillary Clinton has gotten so far because she's seasoned. Do you think that another reason why Hillary Clinton has gotten so far is because of her 
points of view on gun control laws because of the world we're living in today with everyone being so afraid of guns and all the things that are going on with police and shootings and all that stuff. Do you think that's another reason why? Because she wants to do stronger gun laws and everything? So the question is how much is the gun control debate affecting Hillary Clinton's uh, popularity? Is that, the qu is that what you're asking? Yeah. I think in the, uh, I think in the, in if you followed all those debates, uh, particularly the, the biggest differences between Sanders and Clinton, she really hammered that point home. Um, do, do you guys follow the debates very closely? Some people are got a little bit too much to where she kept distinguishing herself from the voting record of uh, Bernie Sanders. And I think that, you know, it was a close race between those two. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that before, but I do think that that was probably a key issue that may have helped uh, turn the tide, you know, in her favor in some of those those uh, close races. So it's quite possible that that played a big yeah. role. I, I think on the primary level it helped. I, I, I don't think it would help very much if, uh, if Hillary Clinton was running against, uh, you know, Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or John Kasich or any of the other 13, I think she would have, she'd have to make her case a little bit stronger against a Republican candidate uh, than she would have uh, against a Donald Trump, as, as you were mentioning, Kevin. I, I think the biggest problem is, is that I think the issues have already been discussed. Uh, I think people are basically making a decision as to who they like, uh, you know, who they like a little bit more than the other one you know, that I hate this one, but I hate this one less. So I, I don't think issues are even brought into mm -hmm. it at mm -hmm. this point. Mm -hmm. I think we're I think we're topped out on both sides. Yeah. That, you know, we have one candidate who has 40% in some states and the other candidate who has 40% in some states and the other 20 go to other candidates or I don't know. And I, I think uh, I think that's where we're gonna be stuck until until we see what happens next week with the debate, I guess. Can I ask, um, thinking about November 8th, they talk about the path to the presidency. Who has a path through the electoral map? What does that mean? And could you maybe point out some states that we should be looking for that each candidate may need? Like, how does the map play out? I, I think um, Kevin mentioned it earlier that Hillary has an advantage. Well, you know, if you look at the map, and that's the, the blue states are for Obama, that's the Democratic states, and the red states are uh, the Republican states. Uh, if you take out the West Coast, uh, California, uh, Oregon, uh, Washington, you take out Hawaii and Alaska, and you take out some of those Midwestern states like Montana and the Dakotas, uh, the Rock River Republican and Democratic states, you're really only left with maybe about five to ten states that matter, maybe even five at the, at, at the, uh, the real serious end of it. And those states would be Florida, uh, North Carolina, Virginia, Ohio, uh, maybe New Hampshire, Colorado, Iowa, Nevada maybe to some extent, and then Georgia has been put into play as well. But if I were to give one that, two that we should really look at, they would, or three, uh, North Carolina would be one, uh, Virginia would be another, and Ohio would be the third. Uh, no Republican has ever won the presidency without Ohio. They have to win Ohio to give themselves a chance. Uh, Virginia and North Carolina have changed because many Northerners who, who are typically liberal are moving to conservative states and changing the electorate there. And the reason why I also bring up North Carolina is going back to the idea of the ground game. Uh, Hillary Clinton has opened up, I think, recently close to 80-something 
offices in the state of North Carolina. North Carolina is a big state from east to west. It's about a six-hour drive from east to west. So she has about 80 offices. Donald Trump has set up zero and uh, argues that, well, just look at how many people attend my rallies. So I think North Carolina is going to be a big one, Virginia is a big one, and Ohio. You know, it, this is uh, just a game of math at this point, to build a coalition to get to 270. And so the map that we have up there now was from 2012. Clearly Obama well exceeded the 270 mark. But one way of looking at this, so those same states that Romney won uh, in 2012 that add up to 206 is approximately what the Republicans have done the last four elections. So start finding states that are most likely to vote Republican for Donald Trump in 2016 that get you to that magic number of 270. You know, and, and to Darren's point, yeah. it really needs to include Ohio. Probably needs to include Florida. Uh, but when states like Georgia that have gone Republican for quite some time start becoming more demographically suited to potentially vote Democrat, that starts, the math is just going to be really challenging for a candidate like Donald Trump to get to 270. And Donald Trump has to flip many of those blue states to his side. Yeah, and New Hampshire at four and, you know, Iowa, that's not going to get you there. You need to win at least, you know, Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, Florida. I mean, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough race. That being said, if you follow his strategy and the message that he's had for quite some time about trade and some of the populism, and we are hurting. There's a ma many Americans who are dissatisfied with the direction of their country, and they have a right to be economically, socially. There's been a lot of problems in their communities. So if you look at places like Michigan, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, some of his message resonates to people. Mm -hmm. I think he assumes that he could put some of these traditionally blue states, maybe a Pennsylvania, in play. And then, then he would say, you know, Professor Navratil, your, uh, your math doesn't, you know, isn't as challenging for me if I can start flipping states. I know during his, his uh, election for the primary, he was, he was bringing up even states like Illinois or states like New York that he thinks he would have a, a pretty good following in. So who knows? Mm -hmm. But it looks tough. I'll just say that. The math is tough. That's all right. Let the question. It's okay. okay. Uh, no. Being like the country is already so divided, do you see it or do you think it's going to get worse with this election? Whoever gets, um, whoever wins, do you see it getting better or worse? That's a hard one. To I think once <laughs> the election's over, we're going to go back to watching The Voice and uh, dancing <laughs> with the stars, and we're going to kind of forget it. No, I, I, you know, half funny, half serious about it. I think uh, the, you know, politics is a game, mm -hmm. and we kind of play along with the game for a while, and then we go back to our uh, everyday lives, and we go back to our distractions. And uh, once the next election cycle comes back up, uh, we get back into it. I think it's going to get worse. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm the pessimist of the group. Um, you think of even Bernie Sanders supporters who feel like their voice wasn't heard or the election, you know. Um, we already hear this idea of election being rigged. Um, you've heard it from a little bit on the left and a little bit on the right. But those who vote for Trump or those who vote for Clinton, those who voted for one of those 17 Republican candidates, many of the, uh, um, traditionally, you accept the results of election and you move on and potentially you compromise. But now it seems if your candidate or your specific issue isn't being addressed, it's like if, 
analogy, you take your ball and you go home, and you, and you don't play well with others. And you try to use that as a way of helping yourself in the next election to make whoever the, the party of the presidency, make them look bad, make them look like as a leader they can't get anything done. You know, so basically if you're the minority party, to be the party of no. And in that party of no, if we continue to have gridlock, then I see that as a reason to be pessimistic. And that's what concerns me. Um, so it may take several election cycles for this to really fully work itself out. Okay. Um, I have a question. Uh, it's about the, uh, how important are the independents in, the, in this election? I know you have uh, touched this topic a little, uh, a little bit, but um, I know a lot of people that they don't feel fully represented by, by both parties, um, especially because uh, they feel like uh, both parties, they, they, have gone, they have gone to the extreme of one to be like really right wing and the other being like the, the, the left wing, uh, the really left wing side hasn't been heard and the one that have like prevailed isn't exactly, it has been like a little rigged. It feels like that. And uh, in a long term, it's gonna uh, things are gonna be are gonna get divided. Even some people they even think that they it might go even into a four-party system, like the really left wing, the center left wing, the center right, and the uh, uh, right wing, the really right wing. So, um, what recommendation you could give to to those who f doesn't feel fully represented by their by the parties? And uh, should uh, should they make kind of like their own movement to be heard, or should they just go along with the with the parties until that can they, that they feel more represented? So you're saying the average American voter should they should they attempt to form their own parties and and break away, or you're saying throw their support more towards third party candidates? Well, so, so, so you said uh, play within their own parties to get their nominee. Well, that's essentially what, what Bernie Sanders attempted to do by going under the Democratic umbrella, even though he, again, has been an independent socialist for years uh, who's caucus with the Democrats. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the parties, I look at them as, as large umbrellas. There are aspects of the Democratic Party I don't, I don't agree with and aspects of the Republican Party I don't agree with and vice versa. So the question is whether or not you're willing to, again, compromise and get part of what you want with that party or whether or not you want to go with a party that doesn't stand maybe a high chance of getting a major electoral victory, but you feel better about yourself for having voted for that party. And that's okay. That's not a bad thing. Um, but if more and more people that you can get to galvanize to go for that third party, then it obviously does can sway an election. And it may not, the, the, the swaying may not even happen with necessarily a win, but just by getting 8% or 10% of that vote forces the other parties to stand up and take notice. Um, just to clarify something with the superdelegates and the Democratic Party. Um, so if a candidate is winning the popular vote, uh, the Democratic superdelegates can just switch them out if they don't see that candidate as fit to win as the, to be, to become president. Right. The superdelegates are those uh, elected mayors, uh, governors, senators, house members, and they declare who uh, they support <coughs> for the nominee, and it's independent of what the public wants. So if the public voted for somebody and that candidate was supposed to get 10 delegates and the person who lost got five, but let's say there were six superdelegates and they wanted the person who got five, the total would be 11 to 10. So they can, they, they commit themselves regardless of what the public wants. 
total number of superdelegates, if I'm not mistaken, for the Democrats is about 15% of the total necessary to win, uh, the total number of delegates to win the nomination. They have yet to have, they haven't ever selected a candidate who the majority of the voters didn't vote for overall. Does that make sense, the way I describe that? Mm -hmm. So they haven't like overturned the outcome of an election. Okay. To, they could. Yeah. Um, but so and I and certainly the primary process is, should be, in my opinion, be reformed. Uh, I don't think it makes much sense as it currently is. We allow Iowa and New Hampshire to go first and second and they are very unrepresentative of the rest of the country and have very disproportionate influence of creating momentum for each of the candidates um, that are successful in those states. So um, certainly the delegate system could be looked at too. But just keep in mind, it, it's not like it's uh, changed the outcome of an election so far. Other than, one of my students brought this up, other than creating maybe some more momentum by when you see those initial tallies and you see that Hillary Clinton has a lead, maybe voters accommodate their own voting preferences because they are more likely to support somebody who they expect to be uh, the winner. Okay, I think we're about out of time. How about a round of applause for <laughs> Excellent questions today from everybody. Um, nice job to our faculty. A reminder, um, register to vote at the table right over there. This is your chance. It is free. It is your right. Thank you for coming.